2: Coming up on this week's show, play Commodore 64 games on your Nintendo Switch.
0: An amazing new version of Mortal Kombat comes to the Mega Drive. And how to surf the web like it's 1995 on your retro machine with Action
2: Retro. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, check out one of their most interesting recent books, The Games That Weren't. It chronicles 40 years of video game projects that never made it past work in progress. And check out more than 80 unreleased gems from the annals of gaming. You can check it out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 308, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood, me, Ravi Abbott, and me, Joe Fox. And a very happy new year, our first show of 2022.
3: I just, I don't know, like, I just, (laughs) I'm flabbergasted that one, is 2022, two, we're still going, and three, we're on episode 308, (laughs) uh, which is just... Absolutely crazy. But yeah, first episode of 2022. Did you guys have a a good Christmas and New Year? It feels a bit weird because we've not actually recorded it in like three weeks, have we?
0: Yeah, we've we've, we've been away from this, haven't we? And it it does feel odd because it's like, you know, we didn't have a show last week and it's the only time that we actually kind of miss a show which is like a one-week break, and you I'm just like, oh, what do I do? Yeah. Where am
2: I? Like, <laughs> How do these buttons work again yeah. on this mixer? And i tell you what, though, not only is it our first show of 2022, but also it's a bit of a, an anniversary as well. Happy birthday, Mr. President. It is our sixth birthday show.
3: Oh, wow. Week. I didn't even know that either.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Six years ago since episode one of this podcast came out this week. So uh, oh my what a ride it's been.
3: But yeah, um, it's good to be back. It's good to, good to start the year with a bang.
2: Yeah, I mean we've got lots planned already for 2022. Yeah. Plenty of incredible guests that we're in talks with at the moment. Getting a bunch of interviews recorded with some big names coming up on the show over the next few weeks as well. And uh, I must admit, I didn't do a load of retro gaming over Christmas. The stuff that I did was mainly on the Nintendo Switch, mm. and that uh, we've got some interesting news to talk about about the Switch. Some Commodore 64 games might be on the way, which you know, for me as someone who loves to see 64, very exciting news. And really, because I mean, we. Do- Christmas quiz best of. We've got pretty much a month's worth of news to catch up on. So we'll get straight into that in a moment. And we're going to be talking about getting your retro computers connected to the internet, which uh, if anyone watches my YouTube channel, you'll know that that is a bit of a hobby of mine. And actually, that's one thing that I did over Christmas. I managed to get my Commodore CD32 hooked up to the internet and did a little video on that the other week.
3: I checked that one out and I was uh, very impressed with the the traction you got on the video, to be fair, yeah, <laughs> really, really quick. And and it made me laugh. I was like, oh, that's a really good video, Dan. Like, well done. It's in like 100k already. And you were just like, yeah, I, I expected like 10,000 on
2: that one. Yeah, I thought, yeah, no one's going to watch that one. I'll just put it out there. <laughs> um, But it turns out, I mean, it is a really popular hobby. And there are reasons why you might want to do it. And also there are some services that have been set up to make connecting your retro systems to the modern internet a lot easier and actually our guest this week is right in the centre of all that isn't he Revy?
0: Yeah and like we absolutely love this stuff like I saw Tfax before um, which was one where you can get like an updated version of Teletext and uh, get the latest yeah. news on that but this is Action Retro and he's got an awesome YouTube channel as well you know he looks at a lot of Mac stuff and especially like that kind of G5 period and Tries to ramp them up and do all kinds of mad stuff on there. But he also created an absolutely amazing service. I was running around the Retro Museum getting as many machines as I could to use this. And this is 68K News and Frog Find. So 68K News basically goes through all the news sites, it strips out all of the main information, all the headers, all the stuff that's not going to be compatible with your older browsers. And it just turns it into a simple kind of text one, but also with images that will work on like your older machines. And Frogfind is like a whole search engine that does that, which pretty mean much means you're kind of opening up the whole internet. And uh, it's absolutely amazing that he's kind of developed this. And we talked to him about that. We talked to him about the old web as well, which is a, a thing that I know you're a really big fan of, Dan.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I've used um, that's my homepage on a lot of my retro computers, the old web.net, um, which um, is like a you know it accesses archive.org's Wayback Machine and kind of serves up websites from back in the day. But I think you're right. I mean, there is there's a big problem with getting retro computers connected to the internet generally, insofar as modern internet security. You know, like most websites today are SSL encrypted. You know, you get the little padlock in the address bar, which with older web browsers. That doesn't work very well with modern standards. And there have been, you know, projects like um, iBrowse is a browser on the Amiga that's been updated and actually supports SSL. And you've got, you know, ClassZilla, Zilla on the old um, OS 9 Mac. But really, if you want the authentic experience and you want to surf the web using like Netscape 2.0, using stuff like 68K News and FrogFind really means that you can surf the modern internet, you can check out stuff like Wikipedia and modern news sites, CNN and the BBC, and get all these sites served up, you know, modern websites on your retro machine, which I think is incredibly cool, because it does open up, you know, a lot of stuff that you might want to check out on your old machine. But also, I mean, I actually quite enjoy using 68k news on my modern machines, because, you know, it strips out all the crap, you know, the modern websites injected there.
0: You're not going to get tracked on that or have any kind of adverts chucked at you. And like, a lot of the reasons why these kind of sites are, are modern and stuff is because they have security protocols and stuff. You know, yeah. you're not going to be able to log onto Facebook using your Commodore 64 or your Amiga. But, um, Damn, there's a challenge. <laughs> but I, I just think it's awesome that this exists. And uh, being a web dev myself, like, just kind of hearing how we did it is is really fascinating. And it's really smart combining of a lot of different technologies to kind of get this to work.
2: Yeah, and you know that, you know, you and I have always been a big fan of, you know, not only connecting our old machines online, but also, you know, people finding ingenious ways to kind of keep these retro computers going. So uh, very cool. We're going to be catching up with Action Retro, our first guest of 2022 in the next half an hour or so on the Retro Hour. Now, we did say there are lots of news stories to talk about. I mean, uh, the Commodore 64, obviously, probably the most popular retro computer, I'd say. You know, for a while, it was the biggest selling, home computer in history until it was dethroned by the Raspberry Pi only in the last five years. But, you know, on the Nintendo Switch, you can play a load of retro platforms on there. I mean, over Christmas, I was playing Mega Drive games. I was playing Super Nintendo games. You've got the N64 games on there now as well. So really, I mean, if I want a quick fix, generally I'll play those games on my Switch rather than setting up my old hardware. But there's been a bit of a lack of computer stuff on there. But it turns out over Christmas, um, a little tweet came out from Thalamus Digital, who obviously we've done entire shows about Thalamus before. And all it said is, you asked for C64 games on the Nintendo Switch. We listened. Stay tuned. Hashtag 2022. So to me, this would suggest that they're planning on bringing some of their Commodore 64 classics to the Switch.
3: I do like, because after the hashtag 2022, they put hashtag indie game, indie game dev, Nintendo Switch, retro, Nintendo Switch. But then they put Hashtag clue, please. Hashtag no chance.
1: <laughs>
3: so I'm like, I'm like, what are they playing at here, kind of thing. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not a C64 guy, you know, as you guys know, but I'm all for it. Tell me a little bit more about Palomis Digital, then. Are they? Who are they?
2: <laughs> well, they were a, a big company back in the uh, well, particularly the eight bit and sixteen bit era, yeah. um, 80s, early 90s, British company, um, and we did an entire episode, Joe. I think, you know, it was one of our early ones when you probably weren't on every week. It was um, 2017 with um, Andy Roberts. And the company actually got um, reborn in 2017. So they're back now. Right. Um, And they did a lot of games back in the day on the Commodore 64, the Amiga, some of the Amstrad and stuff as well. Their most popular ones, I'd say, on the C64 were stuff like um, Hunter's Moon, they had a game called Delta on there as well. Um, Sanxian, Armor Light was another big one too. Uh, the Creatures franchise as well, which I did see, um, they did Creatures 1 and 2 um, back in the early 90s. And I did see a little clue also on their Twitter going, there, Creatures 3, please. So maybe, I mean, my kind of guess is they might be doing maybe another update of the Creatures games and maybe a sequel to it would be pretty cool.
3: Do you think it would be, you know, full on kind of like, here's the virtual C64 like they have done with the SNES and the Mega Drive or do you think uh, it'll be, the games will just be on there to buy individually?
0: I think it'll probably be individually. Like they, they, they I don't know if it will be like kind of case where they've got the emulator in there. Like Vice is the um, emulator that people have used for the C64 for years and that's mm. really good. That's like on all platforms and stuff. But I think they'll kind of have it more locked in because it's a Switch and they are encouraging kind of, selling individual titles as opposed to having like the virtual console on it which they had on like the wii u and stuff um but maybe it will be a case that it will be in there and like some somebody will hack it and (laughs) kind of (laughs) enable it to 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 load it like they did with the uh, Saturn stuff but um yeah i i think it's going to be really cool and from what i've seen the releases they've done they've done a good job of stuff so uh Maybe you'll get some extra features in there. You might get like extra stuff like the manuals in there, stuff that you kind of didn't get before uh, additional content.
2: Well, also, I mean, you, you know, you think back in the day, that the thing that Thalamus were kind of famous for is it was from the company that, you know, brought the magazines like, you know, Crash and Zap64, um, Newsfield. It was actually their kind of in-house software um, house so you know they're very well placed at the time and had a you know real reputation for bringing out quality titles as well and you know i can't imagine it, it wouldn't be that difficult to get a commodore 64 emulator running on the switch it seems a bit of a no-brainer really doesn't it to put one on yeah, there yeah games. it's
0: gonna more than handle it but i, I don't think you're gonna be getting like the cracked version the game here it'll be a, a proper beautiful release oh yeah I think, yeah
2: yeah that's the thing i mean and also i mean there is because you remember when commodore made that um c64 console And one of the biggest complaints is that it didn't have a keyboard. So there will be stuff like that they'll have to figure out because a lot of Commodore 64 games you needed to like press keys on the keyboard to do certain things, I imagine.
0: I've actually been looking at a lot of stuff recently and you know that C64 Mini as well, that's just got support for wireless keyboards as well with like a firmware update, which I think is pretty
2: cool. You know, people have been like running wireless stuff on there as well. So yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the fact that I, I'm a big fan of the Commodore 64 in any way, you know, so I don't know if you guys, I mean, you're on a switch, don't you, Joe? Um, I do. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Generally, do you generally play retro games on your switch or is it just modern I, stuff?
3: I, I don't, to be honest. Um, you know, we had the ongoing joke for a while about getting me the switch and I got the switch and I just, when I get like, you know, I've got my PS4, I've got my Xbox, I've got series X now. I tend to just hammer whatever modern game I want on there. Um, you know me, you know, I'm, I'm still sat here with my, Proper old school, you know, (laughs) CRTs and my Mega Drives and stuff. So, I tend to just if there's something I want to play, I'm I'm a bugger for just trying to buy it and then just playing it on the original hardware. Yeah. Um. You know, I've played around on on the uh, I I keep wanting to call it the Virtual Console. Obviously, it's not the Virtual Console anymore. You know, I've played around on on the uh the NES and SNES on there, but generally no. I just I tend to just play the modern Mario's and Mario Party and you know, Breath of the Wild and stuff like that on it really for my Switch. I don't see it as my retro console, but it probably could be if I really, you know, like if I wanted it to, you know, I've not been on holiday since I got it because I got it just before COVID happened. And I think if I was to take it on holiday with me or take it, you know, away like you do, Dan, I would definitely have like Street Fighter and stuff like that on the go because it's, it's just easy to pick up and play for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, isn't it? So. yeah to me
2: it is my i mean i've got a main yeah. drive next to me probably haven't turned it on for about two years but yeah
3: and that's what i'm trying to say the switch to you yeah. is probably your retro console in, yeah my main not, one yeah it's your main console to play retro games on whereas it isn't for me uh, and it has every right to be <laughs> do you know what i mean because it has got so much stuff on there um but i don't know i just i just tend to go for the original stuff usually you you're know, a purist next, I, i'm a purist no i, I think <laughs> i think as soon as i go on holiday you know, we're on about going to center parks for our wedding anniversary this year. Mm. I'll, I'll bring it along and I'll be hammering, you know, Kirby on it and, you know, streets of rage and stuff like that. No doubt. So
0: that's, a, that's a good thing about it. The portability, but like for me, I'd stick with the Wii U because that for me with the virtual console is like the ultimate retro games machine. And that's literally all I use it for. And like, I play breath of the wild occasionally, but um, mainly just loading tons of retro games on there. And that, is also my kind of main retro games unit.
2: Because you've hacked it to within an inch of its life, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think the Switch is just a fantastic platform for, for retro stuff. So I think the more the merrier. It will be cool to see uh, Commodore 64 games on there as well. So we'll keep an eye on that story. Now, speaking of the Mega Drive, this might be something that gets me to uh, bust out my Mega Drive again, get it turned on and get my EverDrive up to date because it turns out that there is a new hack of Mortal Kombat that's actually even better than the original version, which, you know, from memory, I do remember the Mega Drive version of Mortal Kombat being pretty decent back in the day. But now they've uh, essentially put the arcade version of Mortal Kombat back onto the original Mega Drive.
3: Yeah, so this comes from a hacker called Master Lin Kuei, uh, which I do like. Nice little nod to Mortal Kombat there. Yep. (laughs) Um, He's been working on it for a while, so I didn't realise that there's already been a version of this out. But this is like his updated version of it. Um, and I've been seeing videos of this everywhere. Uh, and even Dan, you were like, you got to check this out, Joe. Like, go check this yeah. out. Um, at a glance, it I mean, I'm not looking at them side by side, but at a glance, it just looks like the arcade version of Mortal Kombat on the Mega Drive, um, which is absolutely amazing. Um, th- th- there's There's a full list of the things that he has done. But one of the main things is a lot of the sprites have been touched up and, like, Goro has been redrawn, so he looks more like... Because I always thought in the console ports, he looked quite he looked quite dark, like the, the shading yeah. and the shadowing on him and stuff like that, whereas he looks more arcade-perfect in this one. But they haven't just kind of, like, oh, made it the port of the arcade. They've actually added other things, like
0: Ermac's actually in it as well, isn't he?
2: Yeah. And
0: yeah. so it's So the way that it works is um, when you get an arcade board that's created... Yeah. Uh, you have dip switches on it, and the dip switches are uh, basically a physical switch that you you know select an option on it, and mm-hmm. that will give you different stuff, different fighters, different difficulties, um, different, different and, challenges, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, biases and stuff like that. Well, he's actually integrated that into the menu, so yeah. on on this edition, you can go through and you can change all the dip switches. And you can customize it to, like, the ultimate arcade version that you really want, which I think is really cool. And, uh, yeah, it's just taking that kind of, like, all the options that the arcade owner would have. Uh, you know, you've now got them at home on your Mega Drive, which is just really smart.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, to make it more like the arcade as well, which is one thing I always noticed when playing the home ports is, you know, stuff like the the background animations
3: yeah, on the li- levels. Like- I was literally about to say one of the things they've done yeah. is restored the background animations. <laughs> yeah.
2: So you've got, you've got the monks in the background of Courtyard and the Palace Gate's Flame and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and also the sound effects as well, which were always really cut down on the home ports, is actually added back in more than 80 sound samples from the arcade into yeah. this too so you know really that was one thing i always noticed the home versions just didn't have anywhere near the amount of samples
0: and does this require any extra kick or anything or does it actually just run on the og mega drive
2: from the looks of it um it says here you know via real hardware using an EverDrive. Yeah, yeah so, I, I was gonna I say i haven't it, downloaded it yet
3: it looks like to me from what i'm reading that it's just a case of you just download it um and i love that he's just put it on the youtube description Like, here it is, guys, on Google Drive. Like, no fear, which I love. Because sometimes, you know, when you want to get these things, you've got to really search for them. Um, But, yeah, I think you just put it on an EverDrive. um, Wow. And then, boom, there you go. You've got the arcade version. Maybe they didn't
0: do it to this level because of the price of carts and stuff and, like, having all those options in there. And, like, you know, the EverDrive's probably bigger (laughs) and able to to act as a bigger
2: cart that is a good point i'm actually trying to give this a uh, a download now just to see how big the file is <laughs> so and again it looks pretty small actually it is uh let's click on get info here on my mac uh, oh, it's 4 megabytes it's 4 oh, megabytes okay image. wow yeah so but i think that the bigger thing was you know back in the day when they were developing these games for the home consoles they were on a very tight time schedule weren't they mm. they generally only have maybe six months mm. to make the home port so they couldn't put as much love and effort in as obviously this version's had i mean he's been making it for a couple of years by the sounds of it and you know obviously had all the arcade assets you know we've interviewed a lot of people before who are like you know i don't know if it was a case of mortal kombat but some home developers just got an arcade machine they had to copy it they didn't get any of the assets yeah. or anything you know what i mean so i
0: i, I love one um, of the messages he's put in there he's put um Winners don't sell free ROM hacks. I was
3: literally about to say that as well. <laughs>
2: you
3: keep doing that to me, but yeah, I just saw that as well. But yeah, this looks brilliant. I really want to. I say I give it a download, but I ain't got an EverDrive. There's me being a purist again.
2: <laughs> we'll have to come well, and
3: play it. Yours, Dan.
2: Well, that is an excuse for me to get my Mega Drive turned on again after a couple of years because it is literally set up next to me again now. It's been in the cupboard for a while, but yes, yeah, there. The EverDrive is glaring at me now, going, "Give it a download." So I'll be doing it after the show. Um, something that. That I might want to play on my 3DO, which also I got out of the cupboard over Christmas again. Said all these good intentions, of playing loads of classic games, um, and use my Switch in the end. But you remember this guy? This place is weirder than Fourth of July at Rick James' place. Lock
3: and load, little lizard.
2: Gex the gecko. You yeah, you love
3: Gex.
1: I <laughs> can
0: imagine <laughs> like. Dan has a dream where he's Gex and he's like,
2: yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> wish a, I was that I,
0: I guy. There's no dream. He is Gex.
3: Man, <laughs> Gex, man. I, you know what? I, I, so many people probably say like, oh, I haven't supported Gex in a long time, but I've got Gex on the Sega Saturn and I had it on the n 64.
0: Have you got I, Gex on the mind? Gex
3: on the mind. He's always <laughs> on the mind. He is. I think about him every day. But no, this is really cool. He Um He, he might might be the key word be making a comeback
2: well um obviously the game came out i mean the version i know best is on the 3do and to be fair the there is not really a a wealth of decent games on the 3do and i know gex is not kind of regarded you know up there with crash bandicoot or anything as like a you know top 90s platformer but I everybody knows
3: it goes gex mario Crash Bandicoot.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was literally above Sonic any day. <laughs>
3: exactly, you know.
2: um, But it was that era, you know, back in the early to mid-90s when it was, uh, we had all of these animal characters that all mm. had a 90s tude, I believe yeah. that era was known as, where, you know, you spit out a load of cheesy one-liners and stuff when you were playing it. Graphically, it was um, quite a nice game, I thought. Um, you know, in terms of, because you got a lot of bad ports and stuff like the 3DO and the Saturn initially, but I thought those kind of nice... 3d rendered graphics you know it was obviously a couple of years before stuff like um actually not it was a bit after donkey kong country wasn't it so i guess probably kind of influenced by that you know having those nice rendered um sprites on a 2d platformer uh, but actually in terms of gameplay i always found it a bit tricky i don't remember getting past the initial couple of levels I, very I, often I, on that
3: game. i played the gex games in gex 3d quite a lot quite extensively when i was younger and they yeah. are hard games i always found them quite difficult as well but the story here um which I didn't know is Square Enix actually owned Gex at the moment. And they've only- yeah, they bought
2: Crystal Dynamics, didn't yeah, they?
3: Yeah, they bought. So Crystal Dynamics bought was bought by Idios in the early two thousands, I believe. Yeah, and, then-
0: and and they did a lot of those early titles as well. Yeah. Crystal Dynamics.
3: Yeah. yeah, and then Idios was then Idios and Interactive was then bought by Square Enix in two thousand and nine, and obviously Gex came with him. Now, in 2017, Square Enix made a series of like idios properties available as part of a Square Enix Collective, which was a program which allowed developers to create games based on old IPs for free. You know, you know these are for you to the public to use. So essentially, what's happened is Square Enix have they've done they filed a trademark for Gex. Um, so the speculation is, has somebody actually made a game using the Square Enix Collective program? Hmm. Of Gex, and it's actually quite good. And Square Enix are like, you know what, we'll put it out. You know, that's kind of like the theory, you know, what I'm reading. Or it could just be they're just renewing him just because they own him and they yeah. may as well. <laughs> so, yeah,
2: it could be as simple as that. It I, mean, simple it, as that it yeah. I mean, the last game in the franchise would have been, um, yeah, it was um, Gex 3, Deep Cover Gecko that came out in 1999. Apparently, there was a PlayStation 2 fourth game in development, but um, that got cancelled back in around 2000. Yeah. So I mean, it's been over twenty years since we last got a Gex game, and the fact that there has been kind of you know this interest in that era again, I think there's room for Gex to make a comeback. But there's some I think random
0: random Gex facts here. So the last um, the last scene he shares a hotel room uh, with another Crystal Dynamics game, uh, Nikki from Pandemonium, in oh, there right. as well. Yeah, and also the British version featured the voice of uh, Leslie Phillips who. Um, It's actually
2: the Sorting Hat from Harry Potter. (laughs) Was was that the original Gex? Did did he have a different... I've I've only played it on a burnt disc, if I'm honest. There's there's like different versions for the American version and stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's a very British Gex.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. So, yeah, I mean it was very of his time and i know it was never a massive kind of thing but i i think you know in terms of a nice little indie game it would be nice to have an update and uh, have an old friend like gex back again so uh one that we'll keep an eye on you know i think we're going to see more of these in 2022 these kind of remasters and characters that we haven't seen for a long time making a comeback there's that rumor of a new bubsy game as well which um being that my wife do loves like bubsy, on bubsy, on the bubsy
3: versus gex there you go oh that would be i'd buy that
0: <laughs> in a heartbeat <laughs> i don't know i, know I just think <laughs> I think Gax is the cool, but guy. I can imagine him being, like, right, really slimy to touch. <laughs> Just a skin texture,
3: like, oh. Would you rather touch Bubsy or Gax?
0: Yeah, <laughs> Bubsy. Me and Bubsy would be cool. i will be holding <laughs> hands, but Gax, oh, sweaty palms.
2: So, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on any developments there, uh, and, of course, we'll keep you updated. You can read there uh, all the stories that we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we did have our patrons hang out as well just before Christmas. That was so much fun. Our little uh, Christmas party where we all put our cheesy Christmas jumpers on and, you know, talk about loads of Christmas memories and stuff as well, which to me, you know, it is one of the highlights of doing this show, this incredible community that we've uh, built up around it over the last six years. And, uh, you know, the last two years of having patron running now, which uh, really saved our ass when COVID hit a couple of years ago. Uh, but also, I mean, I love doing the second podcast that we do, the Retro Hour After Hours, and uh, we did an entire episode which i admit you might not be feeling very festive now but it was a lot of fun talking about our favorite um christmas games christmas movies christmas video games but we do actually a patrons exclusive podcast every single month don't we
0: yeah so we do the retro hour after hours and 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 that's kind of really good fun because it's like us backstage and unedited and you know we're just talking about our memories we pick a subject as well and uh we've done how many episodes now? God. I think we're at 19. 19. Yeah. So if if you actually, I always want
3: to say, oh, it's like 10, but yeah, 19, that's crazy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So if you back us, then you, you kind of get access to this VIP stream, which means you get an advert free version of the podcast on the feed. You also get all of those episodes updated. So you can listen back to all of the 19 extra episodes and you get some bonuses. So you get a mention in the hall of fame, which is absolutely awesome. And You get to do our meetup and uh, chat with us. And, you know, I was feeling really ill and it it turned out that I ended up getting Corona. But I ended up like I was like, oh, I'm only going to be able to stay for this chat for 10 minutes. And I think I was on for an hour and a half because it was just so good. And just having everybody around and the kind of community behind the podcast really makes it worth it. You know, Uh, and it's great. You also get access to the Discord. So We've got a backers chat section on there. So Mm. really good community, man.
2: Yes, I mean, if you'd like to back the show, maybe you've listened every week and you've always thought about backing us on Patreon. Um, now will be a very good time to do it, actually, because with it being the uh, the sixth birthday of this show, all of our bills have just come out of our bank account this month, all the hosting costs. So, you know, it's up to a good few hundred pounds. So um, it will be very much appreciated and, of course, get access to uh, all that extra bonus stuff. Join our hangout that's coming up in a couple of weeks' time as well. And uh, all you need to do is head to our website at theretrohour.com. And, of course, we'll give you a mention in the most prestigious high score table, in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame and a big thank you to the four new patrons that we've had throughout december and that is richard lacey zabi alistrui shiny wolf and matt b for all back on Patreon over the last month we hugely appreciate your support and if you'd like to join them you'll find all the details at the retrohour.com and it will be massively appreciated Right, some more news stories to get through. Um, So much that we need to cover from over the last month. This was a really interesting article um, on IGN about, I mean, we've talked before about PDA add-ons that were intended for the Game Boy. Um, It turns out there is another one as well. This one is called The Page Boy, and it looks way beyond the Work Boy that we talked about last year. Yeah,
0: this is absolutely insane. And I think the idea behind this is, Fabulous. I'm so annoyed that they didn't go ahead with it. Um, So this works not, it's, it's an add-on, basically, and it's like a PDA. You'd add it onto the back of your Game Boy. But what yeah. it would do is, it i.e. the name, Page Boy, it worked on the pager network. So that's completely different to any of the kind of internet network or anything like that. The way that a pager works essentially is, Everybody receives the same signal. So that's how a pager would happen. It would send all the messages out on a radio transmission to all of the pages. And then your individual one would have a code and it would pick up your individual message. So it kind of like broadcasts out. So what this would essentially be would be a Game Boy add-on that you stuck on the back of your Game Boy. It would then have a radio receiver on it and... Nintendo would be sending out from an antenna um, this kind of information. And they said that they wanted to do functions like Game Boy Live TV. So it, it, would, it would be a broadcast from Nintendo, but it wouldn't be anything like video or anything. But it would be like text information on exclusive up-and-coming products, but in real time. So, you know... Kind of like a WAP kind of thing. You like, got like, yeah, like a WAP thing, but you're kind of receiving it also... Uh, like people are comparing it to the Weed weather channel as well um yeah. and i think this technology is really amazing actually because having a device that could work as kind of a pager and 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 receive information in that way it's like really reminds me of when radio stations used to broadcast out software and like you know the audio tones and people would record uh, a kind of game and then like put it on the c64 in soviet mm. places and stuff like that i i I think it's really smart like there's some screenshots of it and stuff and uh you know someone's got a picture of their mum and, it, and it's saying on like you know <laughs> uh your dinner's ready in 10 minutes and that would be like a message that they would send but you could also receive emails and stuff and i think the way that it could work, you know, it could be really efficient if you had it on the pager network, because back then that was already existing. There was all of these antennas. There was already, you'd just be another service on the network. And uh, they also said that it could communicate um, to the other devices. So maybe you could send from your, your uh, page boy, a, a document, and then that could get sent remotely to the Nintendo printer, um, if that had a page boy on it.
2: You know, <laughs> you buy one for all your devices. Yeah,
0: so you could have your whole kind of network all set up and you could, like, wireless, well, kind of through the radio, yeah, wireless, I guess, um, you'd be able to send stuff. <laughs>
3: we go to Ravi's next time We're we'll like, oh, Ravi, have you got an Alexa? No, I've got a page boy set up. I want you
0: to set what? my Actually, own fun- pager network up, see who joins <laughs> these days. <No. laughs>
2: Well, enough, I mean, there is a presentation here on this article on IGN. It looks like it was designed to be connected to the Game Boy, Game Boy Color, because all of these are kind of color screenshots. Um, and there's even a... Because you mentioned then um, about Alexa, and there's a thing in here called um, Ask Mario. And apparently it would kind of work a bit like a search engine. So people could actually query things, you know, such as um, items for sale locally. So you could have stuff like classified ads on there. And apparently Mario would kind of talk the users through the experience as well. And even he would whistle the iconic theme of Super Mario Brothers as pages were loading, apparently. So it would be a bit like a, a late 90s version of Facebook Marketplace. And I bet it would cost
0: you like 30p uh, or a pound a, a query. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's interesting. I mean, you know, we talked about the Workboy before, which was um, that 1992 uh, device. It was meant to be like a personal digital assistant that had stuff like a calendar and a notepad, a bit like, you know, would turn your Game Boy into an Apple Newton obviously never made it to market so it's interesting that this kind of that kind of experience of turning the game boy into more than a gaming system but that was um was in, in planned again later on i mean they're even saying here that there's could have been a phone system in there that would let you send emails from it as well yeah this 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 would have this could have made millions
0: imagine if you had everybody connected who was into football and they all had just a game boy Connected with that, and they went to a match, and then you got the scores off the other match, and it was like sent straight away. They even said you could have a vibrating function on it. Um, so, you know, your Game Boy would vibrate Selling in your it pocket. For me. Yeah.
3: Oh, <laughs> Everton
2: have scored or whatever.
3: <laughs> like, you know. Dan, I think your phone's ringing now. It's my Game Boy
2: colour. <laughs> I mean, looking at this, I mean, work started on it in 1997, and it was only like killed off in 2002. So, five years. They were working on this project, so they put a lot of work into it by the sounds of it. But again, I mean, it kind of begs the question of, you know, the fact that none of these ever came out um, and stuff like the Apple Newton was obviously a sales disaster. Do you think people would have actually wanted to turn their Game Boys into kind of mini computers back then? I mean, really, you're talking um, primitive kind of smartphone functionality, really, aren't you, I suppose?
0: I think they they had a whole market of PDAs and people buying stuff like you said, like the Newton that didn't work. So I think people would have bought it, but if if they'd if they'd broadcast stuff that people wanted, like the weather report, isn't really exciting, is it? Like you know, um, if the if I think football scores, like teletext on the move, you know, something like that. Uh
2: yeah. You remember back in the day? I mean, you know, I remember having a, an internet connected Nokia phone. You know, thirty three thirty, I think it was in like. 2001 2002 but for most people i mean i don't think the average person probably had email and internet on their phone until smartphones came along yeah, in the late 2000s yeah. really so this was a decade ahead of the curve really i mean yeah and that would have cost
0: you per minute or whatever with this yeah. if they just fired something out you'd just receive it and uh, yeah, so. so it would probably you probably get paid for the sending rather than the receiving so uh, it could just be like a dumb thing that just received whatever nintendo wanted to send out
2: i'm just imagining there are all of these uh <laughs> so whether there be any kind of security features on it all these kids at school using it in the playground and then the parents get the bill at the end of <laughs> yeah or like yeah, cheats that
0: hotline gonna... that would be fantastic yeah. for cheats wouldn't it <laughs> yeah you know,
2: <laughs> one pound you're, a you're playing a game you send
0: it and then nintendo send back the cheat codes <laughs> oh man
2: yeah what could it be i would i mean if someone is going to make a modern day kind of version of that now that is something i would buy for my game Boy. We, we need
0: to cool. do like the retro hour pager network and uh have pages for all our listeners and then when the new episode drops they all vibrate. <laughs> <It beeps. laughs>
2: now of course um, GoldenEye on the N64, um, everyone's favourite old school FPS game isn't it come on from back in the late 90s. Um, I know in particular Joe Whenever we're around your house you always bust out your N64 there's always a few uh, drunken games of GoldenEye 007 happens at your house but the thing that everyone's been crying out for for decades now is come on where is a version of this legendary FPS on our modern consoles, and it looks like it could finally happen. Maybe,
3: maybe is uh, the key word here again. Just like with GAX,
2: it's this episode all over in it. Come on, there's all the rumours all the time.
3: <laughs> um, so yeah, so this isn't the the version that we covered last summer, which was meant to be like the Xbox Live version, which was in development in the late two thousands. This is allegedly an actual re-release of the N sixty four. GoldenEye007 for Xbox One. So apparently the achievement list has been leaked on TrueAchievements.com with the 1,000 point gamer score. Straight away, me and Dan were talking about earlier on. And I said, oh, it'll just be the, the achievements from the, the one that was meant to be the arcade version, the Xbox arcade version. But apparently it, 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 this has been listed for Xbox One. So once again, it's getting that rumor mill going. Is it coming? Is it coming? And, you know, I think it will do really well especially for the likes of us and you know people are a little bit older and they don't want to download it and show it their kids and just be like this is GoldenEye you know but there's a full achievement list on there which was only put up recently so and, and you know
2: this game like the back of your hand as well I mean it does all kind of match up to what happens in the game yeah, it? You go yeah
3: it. It, it does match up Um, you know and it, it's like complete facility complete dam you know it's got all the all the levels on there you know what, what are in the game and everything so it does all match up and it does look you know, relatively legit, so we'll see, you know, the rumour is that it's, it's going to be a straight-to Xbox Game Pass release, um, which I'm fine with, like, yes. you know, just port yeah, the game, amazing. just chuck it on there, you know, they did it with Doom 64, you know, when the second new Doom came out, they ported Doom 64 to, like, the Switch, PS4, and it's, Xbox, and it went on Xbox, it went straight to Game Pass, you know, and then I think...
0: Sorry, it's so, it's so hard to... To kind of port, though, like the, the the thing with Rare is that they did so yeah. many tricks on that game. Like when people create N64 emulators, GoldenEye running at full speed and, and in, you know, without any errors and stuff is really tough to kind of create. And I think that's been a lot of the problem uh, for the time. Like Doom, that's going to be a simple port, but um, GoldenEye is just, it's it's really tough. Like, I think every emulator I've used, like Glide and stuff like that, it's always been, there's GoldenEye Run. Yeah, it runs okay, but, you know, there's a few problems with this and there's a few problems with that. So I think it would require an effort, but it would definitely be worth it.
2: Yeah. I think the fact that the Xbox One can run Xbox 360 games pretty flawlessly, I think, you know, with the, the team they've got there, and the fact that, you know, Microsoft own Rare and I imagine they have access to all those original source files and everything. In terms of a technical challenge, I think it's something they could definitely do. The thing I've always seen, you know, the main problem is that it's the James Bond license. That's always it, been the blocker.
3: It's the James Bond license. And then also the other blocker that people always think it is, is 007 GoldenEye is such a classic Nintendo game. And is it Nintendo yeah. blocking it? Because they don't, because they just want it. It's Nintendo. You know, you think GoldenEye, you think N64 because it was only on the N64.
2: It depends if that license has kind of lapsed, I guess. I know. You know, if Microsoft it's, kind of own, own Rare out right now. I know,
3: it's, it's such a hard one, um, but I, I would love to see it. I'd absolutely love to see it. You know, I mean, when did this come out? 25 years ago now?
2: Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, and and it is, I mean, you, you kind of talk about, you know, that that generation of first person, I kind of classed that game as, you had like the, the hardcore ones like Quake and Doom and stuff. Mm. But to me, GoldenEye was kind of the first party FPS game, wasn't it? And I think the amount of people that would love, especially in playing that on Xbox Live, mm-hmm. imagine the community that could build up around that.
3: Oh, yeah, that'd be hilarious. Can you imagine if they actually really tweaked it as well but made it like 24-player online or something? Yeah. You're all just running around blasting each other.
2: So to me, that kind of feels like, um, you know, a license to print money. Well, what yeah. they need Isn't to it, do you know, is they themselves. need to
0: make a custom FPGA that's in a golden gun form, and you plug the golden gun in, and then you can all play golden eye and it's like a mini console on its
2: own but yeah i mean it, it seems like a no-brainer if they can get over that licensing and i mean come on what else is happening with the the golden eye license these days surely again for the movie studio that's like a dead franchise if they're going to throw a bit of money at it again to renew the license it seems a bit of a no-brainer to me so hopefully that will be uh and hopefully they'll do a better job of it than the uh, the grand theft auto trilogy reboot which um was probably the biggest letdown of last year <laughs> but i'm confident that rare will do it properly now, before we get into our chat with Action Retro, this is an interesting article that you found, Ravi, on BoingBoing.net, remembering the early days of a chat room called The Palace. Now, I must admit, I didn't use The Palace back in the day. Were you were you a user of this back then?
0: I, I wasn't a user of The Palace, but I was a user of similar weird chat systems. But also I was a user of IRC, uh, which is Internet yeah. Relay Chat. And and like seeing footage of this really kind of, took me back like uh, a lot of the stuff you know now you've got a lot of culture of people always on their phone always on uh kind of talking and stuff like us geeks we were we were constantly on chat and it was like a lot of the stuff that's been developed nowadays so um you know like meme culture and you have all the Uh, kind of short abbreviations for words like you know afk for a start away from keyboard gg good game all of that kind of stuff that was like elite speak so uh that that came from like the bbss and then it went on to irc and stuff and we used to do all of that i used to remember people used to just know when you were online and it was like it's a lot of kids kind of think that whole culture is really new but that whole internet chatting kind of culture is been there for many years and uh i do remember when it kind of went from irc clients and moved onto the web you had all these kind of crazy additional features and in like this palace they've got avatars and uh like sound effects that each of the people could have and i do remember certain chat rooms where they tried to get this like interactivity in there what what, what are you got your guys kind of early chat
2: memories likes to use something called um WBS, I think it was called, the Web Broadcasting Network or Service or something. I remember that had like a load of chat rooms in there, including local chat rooms that you could go on. But generally, as soon as you go on, if you had a, a name that wasn't like blatantly male, you would just get It'd be a, a barrage of private messages. ASL, ASL. ASL. Yeah, yeah. And he'd be like, oh, mail 17, UK, disconnected, you know, every time. <laughs> um, but this this thing here, the palace, though, I mean, this looks really cutting edge because this was from 1994, made by Time Warner as well, which explains kind of the, the graphics of it as well. But like you said, stuff like avatars on there, it looks a bit like... Um, second life almost you know a decade before that you know people having avatars to represent themselves and cartoon characters and animation and that kind of thing and
0: it's kind of got that like geo City's crazy look like because all the avatars yeah. are like you know there's no consistency with it <laughs> like like the whole early internet and the old internet but yeah it's it's kind of mad that that time warder did it as well
2: yeah joe um i don't know if you were much of a, a chatter back in the day were you
0: i wasn't I wanted to be,
3: and I I remember my mum set me up on an AOL chat room once, um, and I must have been eight years old, nine years old, and it's just funny how you mentioned there straight away about, like, how all the, the, the guys would just home in on anybody with, like, a female name, and even, like, eight years old, my only memory of it was somebody was called Basketball Babe, and I remember messaging them going, like, I like basketball, like, what's your name, kind of thing, like, literally, literally not understanding, like, anything just trying to talk to people in it um to an to a point which i guess is quite sweet but also embarrassing that i couldn't type fast enough to like you know be in the chat room so my mum came and sat next to me and would type what i wanted to say to people
0: oh god i I think they were kind (laughs) of nice for a bit and then like you know you'd have regular characters and then every everybody kind of knew what people were like like especially on irc you know we'd be Sitting there on the certain channels and someone new would come and you were like, Is this person gonna last? Are we gonna work them out? And <laughs> later on, like when Yahoo chat came in and stuff and you had microphones on that, that's when it got properly crazy. And like people were Do you remember talking on that? I, I just remember arguing. people playing
2: like playing Britney Spears songs and the Backstreet Boys and that on Yahoo chat. That's all I ever remember seeing, and then people screaming over, turn it off. That's all I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember well the figures you'd have these
0: you'd have these people and it'd be winding up it was the kind of starting of trolling and stuff and you'd have these yeah. people and they'd start off really quiet and then they'd get really angry, and everyone would start laughing on the chat room it's like yeah i guess it's the start of that kind of toxic culture that uh kind of stuff but um i must say they were a lot more fun chat rooms like we're so used to now messenger groups or stuff like that and it's just the kind of normal day-to-day like we actually use it to chat back then it was like to show off or to like you know meet girls or whatever
2: yeah yeah discord seems very tame in comparison to uh yahoo chat i must admit so um yeah nice little memory there. if you want to check out that really revolutionary service which yeah, i hadn't heard of the palace um a nice little video actually behind the scenes of it um on this article on boing boing net that i'll link up along with everything else in our show notes at the now, if you're listening on um, a podcast client, maybe Google Podcasts or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, little reminder: we have not had many reviews recently. Um, if the platform that you listen on allows you to leave a little review, that is a big way that you can help out the show um, and really help push us forward a bit more in 2022. We'd really appreciate your help. Just a couple of lines, you know, little nice five star reviews always appreciated. If you can find time to do that, that would be hugely, hugely beneficial to us. Um, so we really appreciate anyone that leaves us a nice little review. And now let's talk about getting your retro computer online and lots more old school memories with our special guest action retro next on the retro hour podcast you're listening to the retro Owl podcast and it is time for our favorite part of the show where we welcome on a special guest and it's always a pleasure to talk to people who share our passion and are creating incredible content online as well. And this week is uh, someone who definitely fits all of those boxes. This is uh, Sean from Action Retro. Welcome to the show, Sean.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
2: It's our pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, we're going to talk about your incredible YouTube channel. I mean, you've done some amazing work in <laughs> a relatively short time. I mean, your channel's just exploded over the last year. Oh, so we'll we'll get more into that soon. I mean, but it's always interesting to kind of find out kind of where our guest journey began. I mean, what was it that originally got you into computers back in the day then? Do you remember where it all started?
1: Oh, yeah. So <laughs> when I was a kid, my parents were a little bit afraid of computers. And this is the late 90s. So my first actual computer was a 286 laptop that I bought at a flea market at my middle school uh, and learned QBasic on. And uh, back then, I would spend my lunch at middle school in the library typing out QBasic programs, and then I'd write them down on paper and take them to class and try to edit them on paper in class and go back to the library later. Uh, So I, I think I've always been into retro computers just kind of by uh, the fact that my first computer, technically at that time, was retro. <laughs> it must have been quite heavy as well, being a, a 286 laptop. <laughs> yeah, it had a handle built in. It was uh, extremely heavy.
0: Well, uh, your channel is, is we'll say, your specialist subject is Mac. Yeah. What, what, what's your kind of history behind Mac? And uh, did you have access when you were younger to to any Macs?
1: Yeah. So going back to that, when I had the 286 laptop, a lot of my friends had Macs and I was insanely jealous uh, of all those cool computers. And uh, you know, some, some friends had the all in one compact Macs with the bright, sharp black and white displays. And then I had friends with the performers and stuff, you know, playing lemmings on cool color displays and I was always very jealous of them. Um, my first actual Mac that I owned Again, bought it at a thrift shop, was a blue and white G3, probably about the year 2000. Uh, And that was my daily driver, uh, actually, for a long time.
2: Well, I mean, over here in the UK, I mean, really, Apple didn't start to, I'd say, properly take off into the mainstream until around then. Um, I remember using like a a classic Mac when I was about seven years old at my auntie's print shop. But I know in America, it was a bit different over here. We had stuff like, you know, Commodore and Sinclair and Amstrad that were kind of the dominant home computer platforms. But I know a lot of developers over there started on the Apple II, for example. That had a very big history, didn't it? I mean, have you kind of realized how influential the Apple II was on your studies?
1: Oh, yeah. So when I was a very little kid, elementary school, I think my very first computing experience was on an Apple II. They had a lab set up. Actually, I remember specifically, our middle school was right across the the field from our high school. So our computer teacher had an Apple II, and he had us all gather around and said, wait, watch this. I'm going to send an email to the high school. So he typed an email on the Apple II, sent it, and it took maybe 10 minutes to transmit to the high school. And I remember thinking at the time, I could have walked there faster than (laughs) this email transferred. Uh, but I did think it was amazing that you could do such a thing, and then probably I went back to playing Carmen Sandiego. Well, like Apple
0: II's were really expandable as well, weren't they? Like out, yeah. out, out of the Apple range, they were the one that you could probably probably add more mad, mad, stuff to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Looking back at it now, it's kind of amazing how expandable they were uh, with the slots, and you know, people even building their own cards for them and. That kind of plays well for them even today with people building so many aftermarket parts uh, like CF card, hard drives and, and RAM expansions and Ethernet cards, which I have in my Apple II, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so, yeah, definitely an expandable machine.
2: I mean, when you started getting into Macs, I mean, obviously you mentioned the G3 that was, um, you know, right in the middle of the, the PowerPC era. Were you much of a Mac gamer back then? And like what kind of games and genres did you find were quite at home on the Mac?
1: Yeah. So I've always been a very mediocre gamer. So, um, I, I played a lot of games and I was never very good at any of them. Um, actually after I got the G three at that same thrift shop, I found an LC five seventy five, which is an all in one compact Mac, but it has a big like 12 inch, uh, color Trinitron in it, which is a beautiful display. And that was my first experience playing Warcraft. Um, so that kind of got me into liking old school games like that. Um, uh, probably some of my favorites. I mean, any like playing Rogue on the original on original Compact Max and Black and White. I mean, that's a very addictive game and I can play that for hours still. Um, and then I also like a lot of, you know, uh, what they call MUDs, which are multi-user dimension, online multiplayer text based games. Uh, and you can play those on a potato if you wanted to. But I used to spend mm. a lot of time playing those games on, on kind of old computers that I could get connected up to the internet, find an Ethernet card for and play MUDs.
2: Well, obviously, when you got into the Mac around that era, um, early 2000s, Halo, I imagine, must have been an essential game. I mean, that obviously started... a. Uh- a whole new era for for gaming on the mac was that something that you were you're a fan of or you saw at the time
1: <laughs> yeah i'll say i was a fan of it and also horrible at it um still horrible at it today i'm, I'm terrible at first person shooters um actually my my friends and i when i was a kid a lot played uh we like to play Hexen and rise of the triad uh multiplayer uh, that was the first like 3d first person shooter multiplayer game i ever played uh probably never killed my friends once uh very, very bad at these games, <laughs> but definitely a bit of nostalgia for it. And I do have Halo installed on a bunch of my old Macs even today and still terrible at it.
2: Well, let's talk about your YouTube channel then. Um What made you decide to start a channel? And I'm looking here at your channel. and I mean, you started at the time recording this, I mean, uh less than two years ago, 24th of January, 2020. Over 2 million views on your channel, nearly 30,000 subscribers. So, I mean, you must be... Thrilled at how quickly it's grown and what do you think kind of the secret of your success is?
1: <laughs> well, I'll be honest, I'm uh, very surprised by the, the success of it um, and extremely grateful and humble for how many people seem to uh, enjoy the random tinkering that, that I like to do. You know, I, I've been watching retro YouTubers for a long time. And like I was saying at the beginning of the show, uh, I've been a fan of you, Dan, for a very long time. Uh, and I I still remember watching your video way back in 2013, where you put that Amiga online with browsing the internet with it. And that, you know, kind of blew my mind and kind of rekindled a little bit of that retro computing spirit. I got a couple vintage, vintage Macs over the years. And I had some that had been sitting in my mother's basement at, at her house for a decade or so, went and got those and kind of, uh, I guess it was right before everything kind of locked down. I thought, you know, I've been tinkering with these computers. It might be fun to, to show them off a little bit. Uh, so why don't I try to just make a couple of videos of it? And then I thought maybe, you know, I could challenge myself over, over lockdown to see if I could make one video per week and release it. So I've kind of just been trying to do that. And, uh, I wound up having a ton of fun in the process. I wound up meeting a lot of new people, uh, made some actually really good friends, Steve, Mac84, Mike from Mike's Mac, Shaq. We just went to VCF East and had a display with some of our modified and, and prototype machines and stuff. So, yeah, it's been been a pretty interesting ride.
2: Obviously, the pandemic, you know, been a disaster for m- much of the world and yeah. economy and everything, but I think a lot of people have found the time to kind of rediscover passions and devote oh. a bit more time to it. So definitely some positive stuff's come out of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's exactly it, you know extra time on my hands and kind of rekindled the passion for really tinkering with these machines and modifying them, you know, which is what I did when I was back, back in high school. You know, Uh, I remember trying to build a mystic upgrade, but I couldn't find a color classic, but I had the LC 575 motherboard ready to go. You know, and now I finally have the parts to, to probably do that.
0: Are there any other kind of Mac channels out there as well? I know there's a Macintosh librarian, a big shout to Kate and, uh, there's a, there's a few others. Any ones that you watch?
1: Yeah, so Macintosh librarian is a great one. I think she's doing stuff that no one else is doing. You know, in covering some of that software side and the early learning side, that's a fantastic one to check out. Uh, Steve MacGetty4, uh, that's a fantastic channel. He does a lot of live streaming of repairs on Macs and and recapping them. And and if you want to learn a lot about how a Mac works, that's a good channel to check out. Another one in that vein is. Uh, Brankus Creations, uh, a lovely man from Australia who does similar stuff recapping machines and talking about the the tech behind them and Mike's Mac Shack is another good one that i I definitely recommend.
2: I love that uh, crazy Ken's videos as well computer clown he did some great Mac stuff
1: oh Thanks yeah he has stuff. he has some wonderful machines yeah, yeah. and next <laughs> stuff too. love his stuff on the next cube. Well, we'll
2: definitely talk more about Next in a moment because, um, you know, I know you've done videos on that and I, I find it really interesting as well. Oh, yeah. um, but one thing that you've covered too, um, those Apple clones. Now, people are not like real big followers of Apple, might not realize that actually for a few years in the 90s before Steve Jobs came back to the company, Apple actually did officially license other companies to make clones that could run Mac OS. And at the time, I mean, I I always remember there being a bit of a mixed reaction to them. You know, some hardcore Apple fans really didn't like them, thought it kind of cheapened the experience. Other people love them. And I know you cover them. What do you think of the clones then? And and why do you cover them so much?
1: Yeah. So the clones have become one of the most interesting things for me. Uh, I had a vague idea of them, you know, back in when I was a kid. Uh, But now to really, you know, have some and really understand the, the whole story behind it, you know, Apple's kind of desperate grab for market share at you know at their lowest point and then it backfired so spectacularly and that the clone started competing just for Mac's own high end market share and then Steve Jobs coming back and and kind of, you know, shrewdly taking the clone program away by finding a loophole in their contract about operating system versions. It's very, very interesting. And then the other interesting part is that a lot of people they see a Macintosh clone and they don't know that it's necessarily a special machine because they all just look like, you know, r- random beige boxes from, from the nineties. You'd never expect that actually runs Mac OS. So mm. like the U SuperMac super Mac is in the exact same case as a, a Dell Inspiron, I think from, from the time period. So you'd look at it and you think, Oh, that's just a, you know, Windows 2000 Dell and it's boring, but no, actually it's a, uh, a very special Mac, and inside of the door, there's the the great wave is embossed in there with all the developers, and it's a very unique, special machine. Uh, so I've gotten much more interested in the clone side of things over time.
2: Do you think they made the right choice killing off the the clones, then, or would you like to like to see it continue?
1: Well, from a business perspective, I'm sure it was the right choice because uh, you know they implemented it so poorly. But I've heard stories that Steve Jobs wasn't totally averse to the idea of clones, even approaching Sony at one point uh, for one of their Vios to say, hey, you know, we have an Intel build of Mac OS ten and uh, we think it would run nicely on your Vio. It's a very nice machine and nothing ever came of that. But I, th- I think it wasn't completely off the table even after the first clone program was was shut down
0: i i remember seeing that um music video um, i think i think we're a clone now um if, if our listeners haven't checked that <laughs> out they should uh and that was a kind of john scully period wasn't it
1: yeah yeah and uh michael spindler and um people not remembered very fo- fondly by mac enthusiasts
0: well i, I was it? wondering you know that whole period it was like There was a foundation of a lot of things coming out then and uh, stuff like emojis and stuff like that. And uh, uh, the Apple Newton was one Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Would that ever be something that you would like to cover?
1: Yeah, I actually have an Apple Newton, um, the E-Mate, which is the laptop style. I, I find that machine very interesting because it's kind of a foreshadowing of where Apple's design language would go with the translucent plastic and everything. Um, So I find the the E-Mate 300 a very interesting machine for that reason and also because it's very low powered and it runs on a different architecture and uh, it has expansion and, you know, PC card slots so you can connect it to the Internet. Uh, So that's one that I'm probably going to make a video on in the future. But the, the PDA style Newtons themselves are also very interesting just because it's such kind of a weird product and also kind of a precursor to something that would come along much later the iPhone. You know,
2: when talking to other Apple fans um, of that era, you know, the 90s, obviously a very troubled time for Apple, you know, with stuff like the Newton that, you know, failed and everything. And then obviously Steve Jobs came back, the savior, saved the day. I mean, you know, in a, kind of an alternative timeline. I mean, where do you think Apple would be if, if Jobs didn't come back then?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question. You, you know, Apple was kind of on the fence at that time about who to acquire to save the company, whether it's Steve Jobs and bring in the next technology, or they were looking at B to bring in BOS to be the a different version of Mac OS, you know, kind of an alternate version of Mac OS. Uh, so I always thought it would be funny to take um, an old iBook or MacBook and install either BOS or or actually the modern version of BOS called Haiku, which is mm. a pretty cool operating system. That's kind of the continuation of bos to put that on an intel mac and make kind of a an alternate universe macbook pro yeah that was a very interesting time that would be very cool i
2: mean i love bos anyway but i think they made the right choice going for next
1: yeah yeah
0: probably did <laughs> i think i think there was talk of bos being ported onto the amiga stuff like later on my day we're trying to look for a future pack maybe bos was kind of getting sold around everywhere
1: Yeah, I think they had banked on the Apple deal pretty hard. And when that didn't go through, then it was, you know, what do we do now? So I think they looked at lots of platforms and, and, you know, they already killed their own hardware project, the B-Box. And BOS was already ported to different architectures. So I think they were kind of flailing around a bit looking for a new home for it. You mentioned the B-Box there as well. don't know about you, but that's definitely one of
2: my kind of dream machines on my oh, hit list. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I saw one at VCF East. Guy had it using it as a terminal into some other machines. It was my my favorite machine of the, the night, I think.
2: Well, I've been talking about Next, and obviously you've covered um, Next Step and its kind of legacy from the current Mac. Um, tell us a bit about your interest in Next then and
1: um, what you've covered. Uh, yeah. So I'm... I'm not a programmer or developer by trade, but I like to dabble in it. Uh, so I had written a few iPhone applications ages ago. Uh, and I was always curious why a lot of the stuff in writing I- iOS applications started with NS. So a lot of the internal functions and stuff would be like NS something. So I was like, what's the NS? And so I looked it up and turns out it stood for next step because macOS, of course, is based on the technology they bought when they bought Steve jobs and next computers. Uh, so that kind of threw me down a rabbit hole of what's the lineage look like. And uh, I've always been interested in that. So then I started thinking it would be an interesting video to think about, you know, what actually has persisted from next all the way through to today. And there are, there is stuff like the the chess app and a lot of the GNU tools. It's very interesting. And uh, also interesting, that you could put Next and OpenStep, the the successor to NextStep, onto Intel machines and you know old '90s Intel machines that kind of have almost a pre OS 10 sort of hybrid machine. Uh, very very interesting stuff. And there's stuff in there like in you know, a text edit that has
2: barely changed. Yeah. In modern Mac OS to the old Next Step. So there is, there is a few apps like that in there, isn't there, that haven't really actually been developed all that much over the last 25 years.
1: Yeah, it's su- super interesting um, just how, how those threads have pulled through the years.
2: Let's talk about Rhapsody as well. You've covered that on your channel too. Um, briefly, I mean, have you got any plans to explore that a bit more and kind of explain what Rhapsody is for people that you know, might not be that ingrained in the, the classic Mac scene?
1: Sure. So Rhapsody is kind of the intermediary after Apple bought Next and they bought Next Step. They wanted to turn it into a Mac operating system. Uh, So the first thing they did was just slap a new coat of paint on it and call it Rhapsody uh, with some other tweaks and software and stuff. But basically, they made Next Step look like classic Mac OS. And what's really interesting about that is there were builds for Intel, so you could run Rhapsody on, say, a ThinkPad or an old compact, which is what I have. Uh and super weird to see, you know, classic Mac OS on a an old compact Contura. Um <laughs> and uh, you know, there's a lot of the underlying technology that's in Mac OS today and mac OS 10, you know, all carried through from Rhapsody and then which carried through from next step so a lot, a lot of people really love that operating system back in the day there's websites online still that proudly say you know built by rhapsody and or built with rhapsody and they, they have all sorts of rhapsody software trying to to keep it alive uh, even though it's quite a long time past <laughs> do, do you think like the high quality
0: of the next stuff kind of really passed through like even just the design of the case itself um you know, being perfectly square. And the the monitors as well, like, they were really high quality. Uh, do you think that kind of passed on and r- really helped Apple?
1: Oh, absolutely. So I think when Steve Jobs was at Apple in the last few years he was at Apple, he got a lot of pushback on on his perfectionism on those machines. And, you know, people, you know, pushed past him to put fans in there and expansion that he didn't want. So when he went to Next and st- and started Next, he got to kind of do exactly what he wanted with no one telling him no. So he kind of built his absolute over-engineered dream machines that were exactly what he w- wanted. So when Apple acquired Next and then brought him back, he kind of had that experience of everything that worked and didn't work from that to really bring the, the quality up because Apple's quality when Steve Jobs came back was not – Really, something to <laughs> write home about uh, with fragile beige plastics and everything. So Steve Jobs came back and was able to build beautiful, quality machines with um, also with much less compromise than some of the very early Macs. So yeah, I, I think next and and next legacy lives on in the quality of Macs today for sure.
0: And do you think um, the kind of state that Mac was in, it was it was easier to do that kind of cut with that platform and then move straight onto the next new architecture which is a really tough thing to do for a computer company actually and and Apple Apple does it more than anyone actually
1: yeah uh, I think it was probably Steve Jobs force of will more than anything else and and Apple's desperation probably those two things combined kind of gave him free reign to say you know exactly what we want to do because he, he changed the whole company you know they were 50 million product lines and you didn't know which computers did what, you know, what product line was for who. And he came in and said, Nope, cut all of that stuff for four quadrants, you know, consumer pro mobile desktop and uh, changing the architecture to really make it compete with uh, the Intel side. I I think Steve jobs, force of will played a big part in that. And and I think that DNA still lives on today with the M one architecture and, and all the cool stuff they're doing today.
2: I mean, talking about the you know the early two thousands, Max. I don't know about you, but I kind of love that. Um, you know what they call now, like the Y two K aesthetic. You know when you could see like the innards of the machine, and you had all those um, vibrant colors and everything. Were you a fan of that look too?
1: Yeah, I was a huge fan of it. So at you know my first computer was a, a horrible, horrible looking two eighty six Toshiba laptop that I loved despite its terrible appearance, and then. A little bit later on, my family had a a compact Presario 200 MMX, which was a nice machine, but uh, hideous. And uh, then when I found the blue and white G3 at a a thrift shop, I mean, that kind of blew my mind that a computer could look so beautiful. And then Mm -hmm. sometime after that, I found a a G4, uh, same tower design, but instead of blue, it was gray and a very regal looking machine. So all of that design, I absolutely love, and then especially stuff like the G4 Cube, where they really went all in on design. Even going backwards a little bit with the compromises, but you know, just beautiful machines from that era. Well, you often cover kind of modifying
2: um, Macs on your channel as well, classic machines. What are some of kind of the the maddest, most crazy modifications you've done or seen?
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, again, when I was maybe in high school, there was a site called Apple Fritter which is still online, but I don't think it's updated anymore. People would post lots of modded Macs and all their paint jobs and hacking CD-ROMs into things that never had a CD-ROM. So I kind of got the itch for that from there, Apple Fritter. So today, that's one of my favorite things to do with the old Macs is to modify them. Um, I try not to modify them visually too much unless it's already been changed or destroyed. So an example of that is what I've called the cursed Mac. So it's a Macintosh SE30 that I found online. Someone locally selling it was already spray painted black and someone had already tried to remove the spray paint with sandpaper. So there was really no saving the case. So I tried to take it further. So there was a CD-ROM hacked into it. I changed the CD-ROM. I kind of tried to fix it up to the best version of the original Modder's vision of that machine. And then now I wound up putting it into a clear case with some LED lights and uh, I put a slot loading CD-ROM drive in there. So that's probably the maddest one. <laughs> um, but still on the inside, it's an SE30 SE with a, a 68040 upgrade.
0: I, I was interested in seeing that uh, power, power computing machine that you had as well. And, uh, you know, you put the Sonic card in there as well. It's it's amazing to see the speed that some of these um third party cards actually achieved. How come they were so fast compared to the actual main releases?
1: Yeah, it's amazing what those third party companies figured out too, like to get, you know, machines that were otherwise not upgradable to be upgraded to G3 and G4 processors using like the cache slot and stuff. Luckily, the power computing was built to be upgraded, so it has just a processor slot, uh, meaning that you know pretty much as far as a third party wanted to take it, they could. They just had to build their own board that could talk to that slot. So uh, a one gigahertz G4 was the fastest thing that came out for it, uh, but really the sky was the limit. But yeah, it's it's amazing how much of a transformation you you can have. You know, taking it from 180 megahertz to a one gigahertz G4 with just a simple swap of one board that was designed to be user replaceable. Uh, Kind of not quite what Apple's going for today, I think, but pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, Even those um, Macs at the time, it was dead easy to get inside them. Literally just a latch and you could open them. It yeah, was uh, a yeah. Yeah, complete contrast to what we get now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about PowerPC a little bit, because obviously that was kind of Apple's main architecture for about well about a decade, really, from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. And I know you cover a lot of PowerPC stuff on your channel. And, you know, I personally, I, I was a 68K user, then I saw PowerPC come onto the market, really impressed with it, and I thought it was going to kind of be the future. Are you a fan of the PowerPC era, and why do you think it didn't last then and they had to change?
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the PowerPC era, um I remember for a long time I had a G4 Titanium Powerbook as my daily driver even well into the Intel era and I I remember when they did the switch from PowerPC to Intel and it almost felt like we were losing something special like we had our own architecture uh the you know if you believe the marketing they would always say you know it's not a competition of megahertz you know a PowerPC chip running at half the speed could outperform the Intel chip, you know, it's yeah. not a war about gigahertz; it's about the the architecture. So, if you really bought into that, and then all of a sudden they go, "Oh, well, switch into Intel," then that's kind of disappointing. But uh, did have flaws, you know. PowerPC ran hot and uh, kind of hit a limit of how fast they could push them. Um, but it's still, it's just the the computers I think felt a little more special. Back when they were a power PC, also because you know they looked very unique. There was nothing else like them on the market, and, and they had this special chip on the inside that had a lot of hype behind it. So, were you
2: holding out for a, um, a G five PowerBook?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I I know uh, that was probably impossible, um, but I I definitely wanted a G five Tower back in the day. I remember seeing them back when we still had computer stores. Uh, seeing them on display and being absolutely amazed at the the performance.
2: I've, I was going to say I've got a G5 now, and you don't have to have your, your heating on when you've got it in the room. Actually, it's quite <laughs> yeah, useful
1: yeah, in the winter. Yeah, I have a G5 that I was using as a server for a while. Uh, very loud and very hot.
0: <laughs> well, I, a thing I love about your channel is you use um, Minecraft as a kind of benchmarker, <laughs> and yeah. it's it's really cool because a lot of these machines were out um, before Minecraft actually came out um how you found that and like is it just amazing to kind of be be running minecraft on some of these machines
1: yeah uh i don't know why i find it so funny it's just kind of something anachronistic about running you know this kind of modern game that you see everywhere today granted we're running an old version of it on power pc and and minecraft has been out for a very very long time um I think my my favorite thing, of course, is running it on the power computing clone and getting a playable frame rate. Yeah, Yeah, because I think, as I said in the video, you know, Notch, the creator of Minecraft, was still in high school when this machine came out. (laughs) Uh, So many, many years off from actually creating Minecraft. Uh, So to be able to play and connect to a a Minecraft server and talk to people from this machine from 1995 uh, is just something very fun about that.
2: Well, you and I are definitely kindred spirits, you know, I speak as someone who um, wasted most of yesterday afternoon trying to get an Amiga 1200 hooked up to Wi-Fi for <laughs> no discernible reason, just because I wanted to get it online. And yeah. you've done videos about getting your retro systems online. I saw the, the Apple II one that you did recently. What's the appeal for you about getting these old computers hooked up to the internet?
1: I think it's the same appeal as, as playing modern-ish games on them, just something anachronistic about Getting them online, talking to stuff, and just seeing how far you can go, um, you know wh- whether you can browse some web web pages or even get some some use out of them, like like reading the news or something. You know, it's it's also something quite peaceful to just sit and use an old computer without any distractions and maybe chat on IRC, which there's still IRC channels that are active, like the 68K MLA has a very nice IRC channel. So very nice to chat about vintage Macs on a vintage Mac. It's just a lot of fun to see how far you can push this old hardware. Well,
2: I know you've done some projects to kind of make it easier and actually make you be able to get more out of these old machines online. <laughs> I saw one video that's titled, I rebuilt the the internet for old machines. <laughs> so tell us a bit about the projects that you've worked on then to kind of improve that experience.
1: Yeah, so to that end, um, you know, the biggest thing preventing old computers from accessing the internet is just the weight and complexity of modern pages. But, you know, you don't need all, all of that JavaScript trackers and nonsense to to read text on a page. An old computer can do that just fine. Uh, so I built um, 68k.news, which is a way to parse down Google news into it's just the text and links and, and images. Uh, so it works just fine on, you know, Netscape 2.2 is what kind of what I targeted when I was building it. Uh, and then I took the code from that and wrote frogfind.com, which is a search engine, kind of in the vein of old sites like Dogpile and all those funny names they used to have. It uses the same technology to break down DuckDuckGo search results into just extremely basic HTML2 and also to break down, if you click through to a search result, it puts that search result through the Firefox reader library to break it down into just text and basic HTML and then converts all the links to that as well. So you can actually browse pretty much the entire internet as long as the pages aren't too crazy with their JavaScript. It's it's pretty interesting to just click around, search for stuff, read articles, click through a website, read the news just all from Netscape 2.2, just like in the old days. And it, it works better than I thought it would.
0: It's 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 amazingly compatible as well. So like if, if you guys are listening and you've got like an Amiga or you've got an Atari or anything that's really got a browser pretty much, um I was I was running around the retro computer museum in Leicester, uh going on all the machines and typing in a frog finder and it was just like, <laughs> wow, it works. And I love that idea of using a, a Firefox reader. To actually be able to get the images going, um, do, you must have some experience in kind of web coding and stuff like that to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, so my, my day job involves a little bit of web development stuff, more auditing than writing stuff. Um, so it was a little bit of uh, you know an interesting exercise to learn more. I, I wrote it pretty much in PHP, so it was interesting. I had to I had to learn a little bit to be able to do it. Uh, but it was a fun project, and I, I'm so happy with how it turned out.
0: Do you plan on doing any any other kind of things like that? Maybe a, a Twitter client or a podcast audio streaming or something?
1: Yeah, just a full-motion full video on a classic Macs. No, actually, that exists. There's a lot <laughs> of people doing projects like that. Yeah, yeah. So there's Mac Flim, Somebody is already doing um, full-screen dithered video for vintage Macs. And one idea was maybe you could get YouTube videos to play if you have enough hard drive space to download the video and then run them through that Mac Flim library. So there's a lot of cool stuff. I think that's possible with a lot of the stuff that people are doing and sharing in the the retro and vintage Mac community.
2: Well, are there any other sites or services that you use to make life with an old machine online easy? And I, I often use a website called the old net which um, is kind of like it takes archive.org's Wayback Machine, repackages that so you can view it on an old-school web browser. Is there any other like services that you've used like that to, to kind of improve the experience?
1: Well, when you first started asking the question, the old net is the first one that popped into mind. Uh, that's a yeah, great, great, great resource uh, and a super nice guy. And he also makes the old OldNet's uh, serial Wi-Fi modem, which if you don't have any other way to get your old machine online, that's a great way to do it. Other services like Macintosh Garden, is kind of the go-to for old Macs to get old abandonware software, and uh, the site is accessible from your old machines. Can be a bit slow. There is some JavaScript on it, so actually, the way I kind of get software onto my old machines now is I'll use Frog Find to locate the download page on the Macintosh Garden, and then go directly to it to download software. Uh, but definitely, Macintosh Garden is a great resource. So,
0: out of all of the kind of Macs that you've used and play with, um, what's your favorite model? And also, what's like the one that got away? You know, the machine that you, you really want to get your hands on. Wow, that's
1: a tough question. I love them all. <laughs> if you show me a vintage, any vintage computer, I love it.
0: <laughs> is it is it the Apple One? That's the one that
1: you uh, that you really want. <laughs> well, honestly, the Apple One. I'd like to get one of those kits to build it yourself. I saw the 8-bit guy did that, and uh, that would be an interesting experiment to, to learn more about the, the fundamentals of computing. But as far as machines that I own, I think the Cube is my favorite um, because it's so compact and easy to take out. And also, I've put the uh, 2 gigahertz G4 upgrade in there, and I've upgraded the video card, and it has uh, 1.5 gigs of RAM, so it can run pretty much anything. Um, so that's a fun machine to play with. Uh, as far as the one that got away, uh, I don't really have one that got away, but trying to find something like the Tam would be really interesting because it's such a horrible computer, but also such an important like milestone in the Mac kind of technically the last all-in-one Mac, and you know something that Steve Jobs absolutely despised. So it's kind of the best of classic Macs, and also the worst of that kind of you know just make it up as you go design, design by committee.
2: Tell us what the 10 was for people that don't know then. It was like a 20th anniversary Mac, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. The 20th anniversary Mac, it was an all-in-one machine with a color LCD, more or less a power book just standing up all the time. <laughs> uh, and it was hideous. You know, some people like it, but I'm not one of them. Um, I like it for more of what it represents and and somewhat of its capability. It can be G3 upgraded, which I'd love to do.
2: And didn't it have like a, a Bose speaker or something? I remember it was a very premium product and way too expensive for most people. I'm looking at the introductory price here. Um, it would be equivalent of over £12,000 today <laughs> to buy one of those.
1: Yeah, I think I remember reading that if you bought one, they had somebody actually drive it to your house and set it up for you. So you wow. had like a white glove service, <laughs> bring it to you. And then uh, when they gave one to Steve Jobs, uh, the, the story goes that he just threw it in the garbage uh, at the convention <laughs> hall
2: <laughs> everyone clambering to get it out because like he, he's moved out the way we can get 12 grand for this thing
1: yeah
0: <laughs> you mentioned about the vcf and uh you know i was actually planning on going to that vcf east um all those years ago before it got cancelled uh with, with covid what was it like to kind of come to those events and uh you know you know get out there again and uh kind of see everyone i guess you didn't have a channel and uh presence before and now after the pandemic you you come to vcf and suddenly it's a whole new world
1: yeah so i've never actually been to a vcf uh exhibit proper i've been to their flea market before and, and spent too much money um, but the vcf exhibit was incredible it was a ton of fun then there was a lot of people there and a lot of cool exhibits i got to play with the big ibm mainframe which is one of those things I wish I could have, but, you know, it's the size of a a small car, so (laughs) probably will never own one. Um, But lots of cool machines. There was a Macintosh XL, which is the rebadged Apple Lisa. Our setup, I had a bunch of my uh, upgraded Macs, and then my friend Steve from Macity 4 had a couple upgraded Macs, and and my friend Mike from Mike's Mac Shack actually had a prototype iMac G5, which is probably the coolest iMac G5 I've ever seen because technically it's more capable than any iMac G5 ever released. It's the fastest version of it, but it has a card CF card reader and SD card reader that was removed from the final design. So it's a pretty interesting machine. Yeah, so much fun seeing so many people just talking at length about these vintage machines. You know, I learned a lot from other people uh, who, who know more than me about vintage machines, which is very cool. So definitely a ton of fun.
2: You find the time just runs away with you at events like that, doesn't it? Because you just uh, (laughs) spend all day completely geeking out. It's amazing.
1: Oh yeah. Getting up at 6.30 in the morning uh, and then spending all day into the evening there for two days straight.
2: Let's just get back to the The Mac, because I know there might be people listening to this who maybe want to get into the retro kind of Mac scene. Are there any kind of essential upgrades that you should do when you get a a classic Mac to make it more usable today or any really impressive upgrades that you've seen for these machines?
1: Yeah, so there's a ton of upgrades out there for Macs. Um, It can be kind of confusing because there were so many Macs released. So it can be confusing to figure out which upgrades fit which Macs. I think if someone's just getting into collecting vintage Macs, the most important thing to ask is what do you plan on doing with them? What are you nostalgic for? Are you going to pick up one of the classic black and white Macs, or are you going to pick up a later PowerPC color? Maybe you're into the the Johnny Ive era and translucent plastic. So really the, the first thing to do with any of them is to get as much RAM in there as you can find, and then you're going to have a much better time running whatever software you're nostalgic for. And then some external upgrades are, are often uh, a good idea, like uh, the floppy emu. Uh, if you have a classic black and white or or old, old Power Mac, a beige one, because then you can very easily get software onto it, which is often the most difficult thing to do. Uh, it's a lot easier to use a floppy emu than to try to get that thing connected to the internet and find the right ethernet card and, and everything. But then really, the sky's the limit. There's a lot of stuff out there you can shove in these things. And when you do get those
2: machines online, obviously, you know, 68K news and Frog fine that's going to help you out loads when you yeah. get on the internet. Fantastic. Well, um, what's coming up on your channel next? And have you got anything kind of planned in the pipeline we should be looking out for over the next month or two? Uh,
1: I definitely have some, some interesting projects that I'm excited for in the pipeline. I have some Apple II stuff that I'm planning on doing. Uh, there's a company called Mac Effects who just had a Kickstarter for a, a clear case for Apple II. And I got the one that will allow me to build a stealth Apple II GS. So that's a computer I've always kind of coveted, the Apple II GS and the Apple II case. So that's something on the pipeline. And we've got some more stuff with the Cursed Mac and external video on the Cursed Mac. I just found an external video card. So I'm going to actually be able to achieve my dream of playing Duke Nukem 3D on a black and white compact Mac. So very excited for that, too. Oh, wow. (laughs) Very cool
2: well sean keep up the incredible work on the channel um obviously we'll link it up in our show notes if anyone hasn't checked it out yet um an essential watch you know not not just for mac stuff as well you cover all kinds of things on there if you're into retro computing um definitely give the channel a look and we really appreciate you uh coming on and geeking out with us for the last hour or so
1: (laughs) well this was a ton of fun thank you so much for having me on and again big fan of this podcast and, and of your channels